All right, so I, I, I t I'll tell you that, you know, it, it's very tempting, especially after all these years. This is, Baruch Hashem, our 25th year of this year. So it is very easy. And by the way, Vaera uh, comes at a fortunate time in the cycle. It's something that you, you actually don't realize until you do this. But uh, when you have a Parsha, for instance, um, like uh, Vayeshev, I look through, back through my records and I realized many years I did not give uh, a shear on Vayeshev because it's right before Hanukkah. So there was some Hanukkah topic. Or if you take a look at the, at the, the um, Parshiot, right around Purim and Pesach, they have big gaps there because there's always something about Purim and Pesach. But Vaira has a double plus and one minus. It has a double plus, which is, first of all, it comes not around any Chagim. So there's nothing else of interest going on, and Vaira is just great. Second of all, Vaira immediately gives you the chance to talk Pesach because it's about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, so there's like a real attraction to talk about it. The one downside is occasionally comes out during this thing we used to have back in the old days called vacation, but, um, you know, and we would not have shear, but that just ain't happening. So we're all good to go. Uh, and I was taking a look at Vaira, and Vaira is, um, is about the Makot, seven out of the 10 Makot, Vaira includes the four phrases of redemption towards the beginning, and we've talked about that in the past, and in, and we've talked about the um, the Arba Kosot and the relationship to that. Um, each individual makah carries with it a whole lot of inquiry, uh, the, the, the sequence of the makot, uh, the playing field of the makot, water, land, uh, sky, um, the interaction between Moshe and Paro, the messages. I mean, there's just no end to it. And then frogs, are they really frogs? And then the Ibn Ezra about it, maybe being crocodiles. Okay, lots of great stuff to talk about. So, you know, whenever I start like that, that means I'm not gonna talk about any of that stuff. You take a step back and there's something that I saw last week, but it actually impacts on this week's um, parasha. Um, that when you step back, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things that you, you kind of get stuck in your head and you can't get it out. And I, I will tell you now as a confession, I am a child of the 60s. And I'm looking around and I see other children of the 60s. And having grown up in the 60s, the Pesach Seder and the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim was inextricably linked. You could not disconnect it from the civil rights movement, right? For the next generation, it became inextricably linked to the strip, the triple SJ, because it was anybody who used let my people go, that was kind of like the way of connecting to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And I grew up on Paul Robeson. If you guys remember, when Israel won, and I cannot do that base. But the connection of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and the connection of Yitzhak Mitzrayim to what we saw happening in front of us in front of us in the on the cameras and what we knew to be relatively recent american history was very powerful and what made it even more powerful was the fact that the black community adopted for themselves the imagery of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and in all sorts of ways and so when we picture Yitzhak Mitzrayim that's one image that we have not of Yitzhak Mitzrayim but about Shibud Mitzrayim we picture um, Jews going out into the fields, doing terrible backbreaking work and being whipped 
and mistreated and, and starved to death and dropped by the side of the road and having families separated and everything else, all the pictures that we saw. There was another image that I think for one generation earlier than me, not generation, but a decade earlier, and interestingly enough, a decade later became prominent, and that was the Shoah. And that's in certain circles. Um, often when people want to talk about, about Mitzrayim, they will somehow invoke the Shoah. Uh, I heard somebody once come and give a talk. He said, what was, uh, you know, the, 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 he was describing what it was like in Mitzrayim. It was basically describing labor camps. And I said, okay, well, that's very convenient for a darshan or somebody who's trying to raise money for a cause. Question is whether it's accurate to what we read in Tanakh. And there's one line that caught my attention that made me think that maybe we have to look at it a little differently. Truth is, there's a lot of lines. And it started with a conversation I was having uh, with my son, uh, Roni. That's the shout out that you have um, uh, in, the, uh, in the date up there, right? Um, actually should have said in any case um, that um, we were talking about what are B'nai Israel doing once the first Makkah comes what happens once the first Makkah comes what do you what happens are B'nai Israel still working it doesn't seem like it but then when you step back you realize something much bigger going on so let's start at the beginning, when Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the snap, that's source one, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells him, I see the pain of my people in Mitzrayim. I'm going to come and take them out from the pain of Mitzrayim. And I'm going to bring them to the good, broad land, etc. And Moshe has his refusals. At the end of, the, of, the, of Hashem's response to Moshe's second refusal, which is, they're going to ask me what to, what's his name. And Hashem gives him the long answer. He has this line, and look at it, and you'll see something weird. When Bnei Israel leave, they will not leave empty-handed. Rather, isha mishchenta umigarat beta. A woman will request or borrow, depending how you read it, from her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house. Gold and silver and clothes, fancy clothes. You're going to put them on your kids and you're going to clean up Mitzrayim. So now, we are, are all familiar with this and it shows up three times in the narrative. Once here, once just before Makat Bacharot, when Hashem commands Moshe, go and add, tell B'nai Israel to go and ask for these things. And once when they actually ask for it in the story of the Yitziah. Fine. But what are we picturing happening? And look at the wording. A woman is going to request from whom? It's an Egyptian. The Hebrew woman is going to reject request from an Egyptian woman these things. Who is the Egyptian woman she's requesting from? What does it say in the text? Her neighbor. It says her neighbor, which means, first of all, that the Hebrews are not living separately. And that we know from Makat Bechorot because you have to put dam on the door and that way HaKadosh Baruch Hu jumps over the houses because the next house you're hearing screaming because the kids die, died. But not just that B'nai Israel are now living among the Mitzrim and not in some separate territory. There's something else that's going on. 
Umigarat Beta. What does Garat Beta mean? So, so what, what does that mean? So take a look at the Ibn Kaspi here. Who, I mean, it's not because the Ibn Kaspi doesn't say something radically different than anybody else. Nobody else really comments on it. But Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi here, he says, Umigarat Beta, Hatam Mihamitsrit Hagara Beta Yisraelit. The, Isra the Egyptian woman who lives in the Israelite house. She lives with the Israelite woman. Why? The Bnei Israel had houses. As we're going to see in a minute, uh, the description that he's alluding to. But more critically, what's the Egyptian woman doing living in the, Isra in the Israelites' house? What would you, what would you picture? Is Here's she a servant? It sounds like it. It sounds like she's a housekeeper, a servant, right? She's not a freeloader. We're not just saying, okay, let's open the door and have some meat and come on in and stay here. So you imagine how strange this is. We are picturing a slavery with oppression, all of which may be true, but we have to see what that means. But we're picturing a slavery with oppression, again, according to the models that we're familiar with. Black America, both antebellum and also all the way up until the modern era and the model of the Shoah. And yet what he describes here is that the Israelites have homes and there's Egyptian women who are in those homes. They also own things. And so the Israelite woman in the house is going to say to her, let me have some of your gold and silver and borrow it or, or ask of it, depending how you interpret that. So let's go backwards a little bit in time and see what's happened. And we'll see how much our image of the slavery is off. And it doesn't change the significance of the story, but it changes the nature of the story. Um, actually, I think about it, it does change the significance of the story. Now, the last we heard about B'nai Israel's status in Egypt, was not, was towards the end of Breshit, was in the very last Pasuk of Parshat Vayigash. Why do I say that's the end? Because all of Vayichi was devoted to Yaakov's death. It starts with Yaakov on his deathbed, making the request, or near his deathbed, making the request that he be buried in Canaan. Then Yaakov, Yosef, Menashe, and Ephraim, hand switch, we know that one. Then Yaakov and his sons, and the whole series of brachot, ending with Yaakov finally passing away, and then the funeral cortege. Now, the funeral cortege should tell you something, that there's this huge honor guard that takes Yaakov up to Mitzrayim. Okay, we get that. But this pasuk is more critical, and it's a, it seems to be a mundane pasuk, but it's more critical. Pasuk 3, the very end of Parshat Vayigash, which, by the way, in context, is presented right after this long description of the down spiral of the economy of the average Egyptian, actually of every Egyptian, going from farmer, homesteader, to tenant farmer, to ultimately slave of the state, where Yosef buys everybody as a slave of the state in return for giving them food. And that's where things have gotten by the end of the famine. In the meantime, what's happening? So we live in Mitzrayim. Yisrael now doesn't just mean the man Yisrael, but it means the family, as you'll see. 
Vayeachazuva, they take possession there. In the plural, they take. So it's not just Yaakov, it's the family. Vayifru Vayibumeod, and they become quite populous. And this is the, the, the promise that Hashem gave Yaakov, when you go out of Mitzrayim, I'm going to be with you and you're going to become a big nation there. So this happens. But this is not uh, a bunch of peasants who are just populating like crazy and swarming. These are wealthy landowners who are successfully expanding their population and their power. That's who this is. Now, let's move ahead a little bit into the beginning of the story of, of, of Mitzrayim and we'll see that it's also very far from slave ships coming across the ocean and the sea captain singing Amazing Grace. You guys know this, this story probably, right? And very different, of course, than what, we, what our families experienced in, in World War II. The beginning of Sefer Shmot. So the, the, the prologue is that first seven psukim, which describes Bnei Israel coming down and who they were, and they multiplied, and that whole generation died out. Okay. But Yaakov Melech Hadash al Mitzrayim, Asher lo yada et Yosef. That's a new king. But Yomer el Amo. Now, by the way, who is he talking to? So it's important to understand that the word Am throughout Tanakh usually means army. It usually means army. Not always, but it usually means army. I want you to read this as army, even though the translation here probably says nation or people. And you'll, and you'll see this conversation in a new light. Vayomer el Amo. He says to his army, The army of Bnei Israel is bigger and more powerful than we are. Now, you understand that Speaking to the army about the size of another army is a lot more meaningful than talking about a population that way. A very famous trivia question. Who's the first person ever to call us a nation? The answer is Paro. Okay, very good. And maybe so, but that's not what's happening here. Because his concern is that this army is more powerful than we are. What's the concern? So take a look. We have a pasuk which is indecipherable. Let's deal wisely with him. And here's the indecipherable part. Because they might multiply evidently further. A war will happen and they'll join our enemies. Now, what does that mean? They're going to fight against us. And then they'll leave. It's a non sequitur. Let's deal wisely with them. And what are we supposed to do to deal wisely with them? Because we're afraid that they're going to multiply. So that sounds like we've got to do something to pair their numbers. And what's the problem if they multiply? If there's a war, they'll join our enemies and they'll fight against us. Is that really the issue? Or is the issue that they themselves constitute a large army? And then it's is very hard to figure. So Rashi quotes the Midrash, it's, it's like somebody... Uh, cursing himself and not wanting to say the words like we'll have to be thrown out of the land so he says he'll leave the land but you think about it the, the, the text doesn't make much sense right and if, if you see it in the in the translation it makes no sense so the Sephora comes along and says that really we should read this as a parenthetic statement 
The part that I put in yellow, the, the Sforno didn't provide the highlight. I put that in, but it's based on the Sforno. The Sforno here in source five. He says, read this as a parenthetic statement. I'm gonna read the Pasuk again and you'll see it differently. <clears throat> in other words, let's deal wisely with them so that they leave. In other words, we have a foreign group here that has been very powerful in the land. They are foreigners. They introduced state slavery, but they're not state slaves. And they are now more numerous than we are, which means they've got all the advantages. Let's get rid of them. So let's be smart and get rid of them. That's what he's saying. And then parenthetically he's saying, because if we don't get rid of them, what's going to happen? They're going to join our enemies and beat us. Okay, I get that. But read the Pasuk without the without the highlight, and it makes much more sense. Let's deal wisely with them, and they'll leave the land. So what do they do to deal wisely with them? Now, this is the beginning of the slavery, so let's see what's going on. They put officers of tax. What, what's a tax? So when we think tax, we think paycheck. We think something coming out of the paycheck. We think something coming, a cut out of capital gains. We think about a big check we have to write to the IRS. Whatever it may be, we think about money. That's what tax is. But tax in a monarchy is not only and not even chiefly money. Tax in a monarchy, as we saw in Parshat Vayigash, was 20% of your yield. The land belongs to Pharaoh. You're a tenant farmer, so therefore you have to pay him 20% of the yield, you get to keep 80%. That's your tax. But there's another kind of tax that exists, certainly in feudal estates, but in, in monarchies, and that is a labor tax. And the notion of a labor tax is you have to come and work for the king for X amount of days per year or X amount of days every month, and that's your tax. That's a saremisim. Now, by the way, it's not only here. Shlomo does that. When we hear the description of the building of the Beit HaMikdash, Shlomo conscripted everybody to come and work, and they had to work for one month up in Lebanon cutting trees, and two months they were home. Miluim, but it was a labor tax. So that's what happens here. They put, basically, tax collectors, but they made them work hard. Now, what was the thinking? So the Sforno says very simply, the thinking is, if you have the Rothschilds, and just to be ecumenical here, and the Carnegies, and you suddenly tell them, you've got to uh, clean the streets, and if they don't have the power to actually stand up and push you over and say, I'm not cleaning the streets, and if it's a group that everybody knows has a homeland, that they just haven't returned to, the most reasonable step they're going to take will be, we're out of here. I don't need to stay here. I'm wealthy enough. I'm going to pick up and go back to Canaan. Famine is long over. So Sforno says, you know what the Egyptian thinking was? Let's put a labor tax on them, and they won't stand for it. They'll leave. And we'll be rid of them, and that's all we want. We just want them out of here. So that's exactly what, what they did. And of course, it didn't play out that way. And as Fono says, that's what happened is that this next generation became lowly. 
This generation lost their pride. They lost their sense of dignity. And therefore, when the government was able to put this on it, they accepted it and said, okay, we'll stay here. You know, it, it won't get worse. It'll pass. We've heard this many times, All right? So now watch what happens when we actually see the slavery in action. Moshe grows up in the palace. He then goes out. He goes to see the, the effects, the oppression on his brothers. He sees an Egyptian man hitting in a, in a Hebrew. Why, who's the Egyptian man? Very simply, the Egyptian man works for the government. That's important to note is Am Yisrael are not private slaves. They're not owned by Egyptians. They are slaves of the government. And that means that there are taskmasters of the government who have a right to tell them, you got to clean that up and you got to make those bricks and you got to build that building. And if the guy's not doing his job, he's going to hit him. I'm not justifying it at all, but it's a very different picture. Now, let's roll it back a little bit. Well, let's roll it ahead in the story, but back from Vaira, when Moshe first approaches Paro, the first thing he says to him as the mature Moshe, this is the new Paro, he, he says, B'ni v'chori Yisrael. What does Hashem say? Am Yisrael is my firstborn child. It's important to note Hashem is not stepping in for some Nebuch people who have been mistreated and, 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 uh, and abused and oppressed and, he's, and because of justice he's going to pull them out. That's true, but that's not this story. That's not this story. This is a different story. Am Yisrael is my B'ni b'chor, my firstborn son. And my message to you is, let my children go that they serve me, but my son go that he may serve me, and you refuse to let him go. You don't let my firstborn son go to serve me, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. A critical to understand, this is now a fight over who owns B'nai Israel. By the way, B'nai Israel are not free people, because what happens at Har Sinai, Pasuk 8, what does Hashem say? B'nai Yisrael are my slaves. He stresses it. And why are they my slaves? I took them out of Mitzrayim. In other words, Paro was claiming ownership over these people that he could put them un under a labor tax. He could make them work for him. And my claim is, no, they don't work for you. They work for me. They're my people. And the battle of Yitziat Mitzrayim is a battle of Paro versus God. It's a battle of Moshe saying to Paro, God is powerful here. God is more powerful than your gods. God is powerful in the land. All the messages of the Makot until Paro finally relents because it's a question of the ownership of B'nai Yisrael. And I want to show you the Ramban here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the Ramban at the beginning of Shmot says this exact point. He says that Paro realized that they could not take these people and just suddenly mistreat them and oppress them. So he said, let's come over the plan. Okay, take a look here at this line. Paro simply put a tax to take people to do work for the king. And he simply said to the Egyptians, take whichever Hebrews you want for work. 
So they work for a month or so working for the king or Shari Mimbetal the rest of the time you're home, meaning you still have your house in Beverly Hills. You still may have the two-car garage with the two cars in it. You, by the way, may have a housekeeper who's an Egyptian. But you have to report to the king in the morning for a month at a time. That's the issue. Right? And then at the, at the end, the Ramban, just to put it together here, says, the king would feed them because after all, they're working for the king, right? They're working for the king. And by the way, they're working for the king. They still could bring nice food from home, but they work for the king. So the king feeds them with cheap bread. You know what we call that cheap bread? We call it matzah. He fed them with cheap bread, just like anybody else who works for the king. And after all, you're out there for a month at a time. You can't bring food from home, so you take what the king gives you. Later on in the desert, the people who lusted after food, who didn't want them on, we remember the fish, we remember the squash and the watermelon and all the good stuff we ate. Why? They weren't making it up. There's lots of fish in Egypt. What happened is these people worked for the king and the king also ordered uh, fishermen to go check, catch fish and give them to his workers. So they got free fish. And as workers for the king, they were able to take stuff from people's fields, squash and watermelon. And nobody could stop them. I want you to get this picture. I want you to get the picture here. These are not slaves owned by individual Egyptians. They are slaves of the state. Ramban makes this point very clearly. Now, why does that impact on us? Because the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is a story it's, it's, it is truly the greatest story ever told. Right? I don't have to ask Mechila from anybody. And it is our foundational story. But we have to understand it correctly, what it's about. Is it about a miscarriage, a gross miscarriage of justice, which God corrects? Okay. Well, what's the nature of that miscarriage? Is it a miscarriage of justice because nobody should be enslaved to anybody else? That's a little hard to argue. Is it a miscarriage of justice because you're beaten up so badly? Maybe, but that's not the point that consistently made throughout the story. The miscarriage of justice is to have B'nai Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the children of God's select, to be enslaved to anybody but God, for anybody else to claim ownership over this people. And the entire duel between Moshe and Paro throughout the narrative is about that. Who owns, who's in control, and who owns B'nai Israel? Remember, what's Moshe's first request? And last request, and the whole time, what's the request? The request is not to leave and make Aliyah. The request is to go and serve God. Why is Paro so resistant? Because serving God means you're not serving me. It means you have a, another master besides me. And that's exactly what the battle's about. 
And so the festival of our freedom is a festival of full servitude. It's a festival in which we celebrate the fact that we are fully avadim l'ashem. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of a different take on the story, which of course is the most significant story in our history and in our and in our in our awareness, um, and hopefully a fresh way to look at the parashot that we're reading these weeks.